a mirror. Man, you look good. The belt matches the shoes. Nice. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be an outstanding man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. But I'm doing the best that I can. <laughs> now, I don't usually sing when I look in the mirror. In fact, I don't know if you can call that singing at all. Although, Mark, I do expect a call to be in the choir. I think I'm moving up. I'm going to start doing solos and stuff like that. Kind of the complete package. No. Obviously, I can't sing. But I do look in the mirror. We all look in the mirror. And it's not necessarily bad to look in the mirror. We have to look in the mirror, right? We got to check our hair. We got to make sure that there's nothing in our teeth. We have to put on our makeup. Well, you, some people, have to put on their makeup. But it's not necessarily bad to look in the mirror, but it can be bad to look in the mirror. Because looking in the mirror can cause us to think too much about ourselves. Or looking in the mirror can demonstrate the fact that we do think too much of ourselves. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together as we open his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have brought us to this place this morning. It is our prayer, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us what you would have for us this morning and that we would be changed, that our minds and our hearts would be changed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that when we leave this place, we are more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to continue to look at our role in the story. We're going to continue to look at our role in God's great epic story, the gospel. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have received him as your savior, you have a part in that epic story. You are participating in the great story. We started by looking at Romans 12, verse 1. And we saw in Romans 12, verse 1, that in view of what God's done for us, in view of God's mercy, the fact that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to rescue us from our sins, in view of what God has done for us, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to truly die to self so that we can truly live. We're to put all of ourselves in the offering plate. We're to be all in. And then last week, we looked at Romans 12, verse 2. And we said that Romans 12, verse 2 helps us understand how we're to stay in the offering plate. It gave us the second aspect of our role in the story. And that is that we are to be transformed. We are to be more and more like Jesus Christ, having more and more of the mind of Christ 
and we get to participate. We're not to conform to the pattern of this world, but we're to be transformed, and we get to participate with God in the renewing of our minds. This week, we're going to look at Romans 12, verse 3. And we're going to see the third aspect of our role in the story. So if you would, take your Bible, turn to Romans 12, verse 3. It's found on page 803 in the Bible that the church provides. And we're going to see what our third aspect of the role in the, our role in the story is. Now, interestingly, although verse 2 calls for the renewal of our minds, it does not specifically tell us how our renewed mind is to think. But now here in verse 3, Paul is going to tell us, in addition to laying out this third aspect of our role in the story, Paul is going to tell us how the renewed mind is to think. The first thing that the renewed mind is to think, Paul is going to tell us. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think, notice, renewed mind, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now this is remarkable, because there are many, many things, there are a lot of things that Paul could have come out of the gate saying. There are many things that Paul could have said that our renewed mind is supposed to think first. But here what Paul says is he says that the first thing that we should address, the first thing Paul chose to address is how our renewed mind thinks in regards to pride. Paul addresses the issue of pride and how we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves in relationship to others. He says something negative and he says something positive. Just like he did last week in verse 2, where he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This week, he gives us a negative and a positive as well. Here he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, Paul makes the first task, he makes the priority of the renewed Christian mind, the obliteration of pride, and the cultivation of humility. What is new about this renewed mind that Paul is talking about? Pride is put to death and humility begins to grow. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You see, when we look in the mirror, there's a real danger that we will think of ourselves more highly than we ought. None of us are immune to pride. It shows up in different forms and to different degrees. Some of us look in the mirror and we have a very high view of ourselves. Some of us look in the mirror and we think we are great. Some of us look in the mirror and we think we have everything under control. Some of us look in the mirror and we think we can make all of our decisions. Some of us look in the mirror and we can sing with gusto, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. But that is obviously pride. But there's another form of pride as well. It's the person who looks in the mirror, still focusing on self, and has a low view of themselves. It's the person who looks in the mirror and says, oh, I can't do that. I don't have any talents. God can't use me. I don't look very good. The person who has a low view of self is also prideful because they are spending too much time focusing on themselves. 
Now, some people have a low view of themselves and seek attention and compliment. They say those types of things so that somebody responds, hey, no, you know what, you're great. You, you, you can really sing. Or you really, you really could do that. Or you really are beautiful. That's a form of pride. Now, some people have a low view of self and don't seek attention or compliment. It's just a low view of self. But it's still a form of pride. Why? Because it's self-focus. There are different forms of pride. Whether we have a high view of self or a low view of self, it can be pride. It's the self-focus that is demonstrating pride. See, the thing is, pride infects us all. All of us are full of pride. All of us tend to think too much about ourselves. All of us have a high degree of self-focus. And it's strongly embedded in us. And it's been embedded in us for a long, long, long time. Way before Adam and Eve, we see that pride is the first sin that shows up out of the gate. Lucifer, the highest of all angels, the most beautiful, the most powerful of all angels. God has made him a prince in heaven. But Lucifer, it wasn't enough for him. Look what Lucifer says in Isaiah 14. Look how he views his situation. You said in your heart, this is Lucifer, the highest of all angels, Satan. I will ascend to heaven I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Lucifer, the most beautiful and powerful angel, desires to be like God. This is self-focus. This is pride. And Lucifer says, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I want to be God. It's pride. It's a self-focus. And from God's perspective, pride is probably the most serious of all sins. It is the sin that is at the top of God's hate list. Look at these Proverbs and look at how God views pride. Proverbs 6. Look at what this says. There are six things the Lord, what? Hates. And there are seven that are what? Detestable. There are seven that are an abomination. What's the first thing on the list? Haughty eyes. Pride is the first thing. There are six things God hates, seven that he finds that are an abomination, and the first thing on the list is haughty eyes. Look at this next proverb. Proverbs 8.13. This is God speaking. God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Strong, strong language. This next proverb, Proverbs 16.5. The Lord detests the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Do you think God is serious about pride? But why? Why is God so serious about pride? Why does God hate pride? Why does he detest pride? Why is it abomination? 
Because at its core, when we are full of pride, what we are saying is we do not need God and we want to be God. At its core, when we are people of pride, we are saying that we have everything under control, we want to make our own decisions, and God, we don't need you. Just like Lucifer, we want to ascend to the most high place. We want to be in the position of God, and God does not share his glory with anyone. Neither you nor me. And so he says, I hate, I hate. Hate, pride, and arrogance. I detest it, and he won't go unpunished. And not only does he oppose pride, not only does he hate it, but he does oppose it. Look at James 4. Look at this verse in James 4. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Not only does he hate pride, he actively works against it. He doesn't just sit back and say, oh man, I hate it when Tom looks in the mirror. That's not really a good thing. No, he opposes the proud. He acts against the proud. He punishes the proud. God is serious about pride. So because pride infects us all, Paul instructs us with his apostolic authority. Paul says to us, because I'm an apostle, This is what he's saying. For by the grace given to me, he's saying because of what's been given to me, because I'm apostle, this is what I'm telling you. And he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Then he tells us what we should do. He tells us to think of ourselves with sober judgment. So what does it mean to think of ourselves with sober judgment? Essentially what Paul is saying here is he's equating sober judgment with humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but instead cultivate humility. Instead, be humble. But it can be difficult to wrap our minds around the idea of humility, can it? It's a difficult concept to understand. So so let's define it further. Humility is an attitude or quality of mind whereby a person honestly assesses his own goodness and importance in light of God's holiness and our sin. Humility is when we recognize who God is and who we are. Humility is when we recognize that God is the creator and I am the created. Humility is when we recognize that God is holy and I am a sinner in need of him. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of self-focus. It's the opposite of self-exaltation. Humility is when I recognize who God is, and then I recognize who I am, and I have a proper view of that relationship. Now, humility, obviously, is greatly preferred over pride. John Stott, the pastor and theologian, put it this way. This is what he wrote about humility. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the what? Pride is the greatest enemy. And humility is the greatest friend. 
Pride is the greatest enemy, and our humility is our greatest friend. Why is that the case? Why is it that humility is the greatest friend? Why is it that God wants us to be humble? Why is humility our friend? Because God offers a promise to the humble. God gives those who are humble a promise. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Look at this other translation of the same verse. This is the one to whom I will look, and he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God gives a promise to the humble. He says, the humble is the person who I'm going to esteem. The humble is the person I will look at. The humble is the person who I will recognize. The humble is the person who I am going to take care of. God writes this verse to the people of Israel. He writes this verse to his chosen people. And these people have a special relationship with God. But because of that special relationship with God, they became arrogant. They became full of pride. And they did not tremble at his word. So God, in his mercy, recognizes that. And he reminds them, he says, I look after, I take care of the humble. Be humble. I will take care of you. I will look after you. So he says the same to you and to me. He says, if you're humble, if you tremble at my word, I will take care of you. I will look upon you. I will recognize you. I will offer you something. Look again at James chapter 4, verse 6. Look at it in a new light. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, God recognizes the humble. He looks to the humble. He looks after the humble, and he gives grace to the humble. He bestows his unmerited favor upon the humble. The world wrongly thinks that God takes care of those who take care of themselves. There could be nothing further from the truth. God takes care of those who allow themselves to be taken care of by God. God gives grace to the humble. You want God to see you? You want God to recognize you? You want God to look after you? You want God to take care of you? Cultivate humility in your lives. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we know that pride is our enemy, humility is our friend, but how do you cultivate humility without becoming prideful? We know we can't look at the mirror and look at ourselves too high. We can't look at the mirror and view ourselves too low. We can't go around telling people how humble we are because then we're actually demonstrating pride. So what do we do to cultivate humility? Well, Jesus and the disciples help us. Turn back to Mark chapter 9. Turn back to Mark chapter 9. It's page 715 in the Bible that the church provides. We get some help from the disciples because even the disciples weren't immune to pride. And even in their own accounts, in the disciples' own accounts, 
they talk about their personal strive for greatness and recognition. Mark 9, page 715, look at verse 33. Jesus and his disciples are traveling together now. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But the disciples kept quiet, probably from embarrassment, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Think about this. These guys hung out with Jesus. All the time, these guys are with Jesus. The ultimate Example of humility, Jesus. They're with him. They're hanging out with him. And what happens? They say, who's going to be the greatest? Who in this kingdom is going to be the greatest? But look at how Jesus responds. He addresses their selfish ambition. Verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And the Servant of all. You see here, Jesus is radically redefining greatness. And he's identifying the road to humility. But these disciples, they're slow. It takes them a while to get it. So turn the page to Mark chapter 10 and look at Mark 10 verse 35. Now obviously Mark 10 is very shortly after Mark 9. And we see that two of the disciples, James and John, two brothers, approach Jesus. And obviously, they agree on their apparent greatness, so they have a special request for Jesus. And they must think that Jesus is going to agree with their greatness and with this, this special request, because there's no hesitancy on their part to ask this question. Look what they ask, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? You're with Jesus. You're like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Genie in a bottle. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem where they wrongly assume that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom and establish his glory. And out of their mouths come the question, can we sit at your right and at your left? Can you put us in the position of prominence? They think they are great. They think they deserve this position of prominence. They want a high place in Jesus' kingdom. They want to sit on his right and on his left. And this is all pride. It's on full display. There is nothing subtle about their request. They want to be famous. They want title. They want position and power. They want to be great. Can you see yourself in this story? It's often the way we think, isn't it? We focus so much on ourselves and our position. Just like James and John, we want the special place. 
We want to make our own decisions. We want power. We compare ourselves to others and we think we're better. Or at least we compare ourselves to others and desire to be better than them, to have more power than them, to be more important. We're obsessed with ourselves. And this is pride. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, look at Jesus' gentle response to James and John in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, you can almost sense Jesus' patience with them. He reminds them of what they've observed during the long years of Roman occupation. Look what he says. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Then the contrast. Not so with you. Now what is interesting is that Jesus does not forbid the desire to be great. Instead, he redirects ambition and redefines it. Look what he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. When we read the Bible, we always want to pay careful attention to the word must. Must points us to something that is required, something that is essential. You want to be great, Jesus asks, then you must become a servant to others. You must be a slave to everyone. This is what Jesus says, and this is what Jesus did. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is humility. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And the contrast could not be greater. The world says, live your life on the basis of self. Pursue self-interests. Seek indulgence. Pursue self-indulgence. Pursue self-exaltation. Pursue self-glorification. Go after whatever you think you want. Pursue yourself. Live for yourself. But God says, if you want to be great, serve others for the glory of God. The contrast could not be greater. Back to Romans 12 and to our last point. We're going to wrap it up. Paul leaves us with one more instruction on the pursuit of humility. And it may be the most important. 
And I think it wraps up our three weeks together. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Paul tells us to think in accordance with the measure of faith God has given. Now, there are a few ways that theologians think this phrase can be interpreted. But if you look at the word measure and think of it as a standard, it means that we are to view ourselves based upon the standard of faith that is Jesus Christ and his gospel. In other words, we are to view ourselves in light of what Jesus has done for us. So Paul is saying that in order to avoid pride, in order to cultivate humility, we must reflect on the wonder of the cross. You see, we have a choice. Every one of us has a choice. We can choose to live our lives looking at the mirror. We can choose to live our lives for our own self-exaltation. We can choose to live our lives for our own self-glorification. Or you can choose to live your life in view of the cross. You can choose to recognize who God is and what he has done through, for you through Jesus Christ. The choice is that stark. It is that difference. There is a huge contrast. You see, because when we look at the cross, the cross screams out to us. The cross screams out and it says, Jesus was here because of you. The cross screams out and says, Jesus was there because of your sin. Jesus says, I went to the cross to pay your debt. I went to the cross to die instead of you. So when you look at the cross, you can do nothing else but be humble. The cross puts everything in perspective. You recognize who God is and who you are. You recognize that God is holy and you are a sinner in need of him. You recognize that he is creator and you are created. And the only way that happens is if you view life in view and in the shadow of the cross. Because if you are stuck here looking at yourself in the mirror, you are lost. Jesus says, look at what I've done for you. view life in view of the cross. And we can do nothing but be humble. Now parenthetically, there's another thing the cross screams. The cross, every time you look at it, should scream out to you how much God loves you. So how can you help but not live life in humility before God. Each one of us have a choice. You can live life looking at the mirror, or you can live life looking at the cross. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together this morning to worship you, to open your word, to hear from you. And it is our prayer, Lord, that you 
through your Holy Spirit will transform us, that you will make us more like Christ, and that you will make us demonstrate and cultivate the humility that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to claim your promise that you look to, you see, you give grace to the humble. Lord, it is our desire to cultivate humility. Help us to do that. Lord, we ask that we will not be a people that look in the mirror, but help us to be a people who look at the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.